The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus prayed for his disciples, and then he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. Amen. This past week, I read an article about different translations. I thought what I would be reading about was an explanation of how these translations were different, but the purpose of the article seemed to be to line up all these translations, and there are many, and then beside each one, what religious group uh, predominantly read this particular translation. For example, if you are in any Episcopal church on a Sunday morning or in any of the uh, mainline Protestant churches, you'll probably hear the scripture read from the New Revised Standard Version. And if you are in what the author called centrist evangelical churches, you might hear the, the scripture read from the New International Version. And he went on to describe all of these different relationships between the various translations and the various denominations. And then he said how terrible it is that we divide ourselves even about how we look at Scripture. We are so tribal. All of that tribalism divides us. And I think he's absolutely right. We tend to be tribal. Now, we see that in so many ways, I think, today. Perhaps it's most obvious in the Middle East with the tribalism that has arisen there and the, the conflict between Shia and Sunni Muslims. But it was also a reality in the bloody history of the Reformation on the continent and the English Reformation. I'll never forget, uh, after seminary, I was watching uh, Catholic television. I didn't really realize I was watching it. Uh, it was a documentary about the English martyrs. And I was trying to think, I hadn't heard of any of these Anglican martyrs before. That's because they're all Catholics who were burned at the stake. So there's a great history of it in the church, but it's also present in society today. We know that tribalism is what seems to be infesting our political life, and not just here, but also in Europe. 
we see tribalism sometimes in the church as well. And we see it certainly within our own Anglican communion. It's so unfortunate that we line ourselves up according to our tribe. The definition of, or one definition of tribalism is a strong in-group loyalty. Loyalty in and of itself is not a problem. But when loyalty becomes exclusive, when you have to be one of us or else you're out, that is tribalism. And I think it's a sin. Well, the gospel that we have today talks a lot about unity. At one point in preparation for the sermon, I thought maybe I should try to diagram the sentences that are in this scripture, because it seems like the, the, the words just roll over one over the other. And I think that what I finally came to with that was that uh, John wanted to just make it very clear about us being in him, him being in God, God being in us, Jesus in us, we in him. It was just as, as much as he could possibly put in to show that we are a part of God. We are also a part of the Christian church throughout the centuries. Listen to this uh, opening sentence from that passage, which is probably the clearest. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. This is unity that is grounded in the love of God and love of neighbor, love of one another, especially in the church. So Jesus prays for his disciples. This is not a sermon that Jesus is giving, but rather it is what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it takes up the entire 17th chapter of John. And he's praying this just before he leaves after the Last Supper and proceeds to go down across the, uh, the Hebron Valley into the garden where he will be betrayed and arrested. In other words, these are the last words that are in Jesus' mind before he's handed over to the authorities. So these are very important words. And it's interesting that his focus at that particular time was on one thing. It was on unity. Unity of all those who would be left behind, first of all, but much more than that also. I think one of the things that's very hard for us to understand is that from time to time in Scripture, we are invited to transcend time and space. We're invited to go beyond all of that, beyond this, this material life that we know, where we can touch things, we can experience things with our five senses, and we're invited to go beyond that, to see that there's a reality that is more than that. And that's what this prayer is about. It's about the disciples, Jesus praying for them. But it's also about all of us who would come after, who are receiving the witness of those disciples, the disciples after them, the disciples after them, and finally us. I've often said that I think it's a miracle that we are all here on a Sunday morning. You know, why would people get up on a beautiful day, not read the New York Times or the Boston Globe, have that cup of coffee, but rather come into church. And it's because of the witness of those who have gone before us. And Jesus' prayer says that all of us are one. Those first disciples, the ones that came after, the ones that are here today, and the ones who will come after us, 
We are all one right now. Not something in the past, not something in the future, but from God's perspective right now. That is a blessing that's been given to the church. This blessing of unity. There's another problem with this, however. We still have free will. So while Jesus has prayed us into unity, we must choose if we're going to live into unity. I had an experience a number of years ago when I was a layperson. I was a member of a vestry. And in this congregation, uh, suddenly there was this conflict that, uh, that uh, boiled up about the rector. And I was in the part of the vestry that was in favor of the rector staying and couldn't understand why everybody was so upset. And there was about half of the vestry that wanted him to go uh, sooner than later. We all thought we were right. In fact, we really thought we were righteous. And it was our righteousness that got us into trouble. I have often thought about that experience. It was one of the worst emotional experiences I've had in my life. Even the loss of my grandparents, who were really my parents, was not as painful as that experience. And the reason I think it was so painful is because it was so obvious to us I think we all knew it, but we couldn't do anything about it at the time. But it was so obvious that we were not obeying Jesus. We were not obeying that command to love one another. And they will know you are my disciples by your love. That was the command given when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And he asked them, serve one another. We were not serving one another. We were not loving one another. We were living in sin. Well, it was years later that I found out that one man who was very prominent on the other side of that uh, great disagreement died while changing the tire of his son's bike. And his son was there and saw him die. And I'm convinced that he died because of the stress that we had all gone through with that great church fight. I don't know that we learned anything out of that. I know that congregation today is healthy. They've come way beyond that. And I think they understand what it is to love one another, to be a good witness in the world. And I know that I've confessed the sin that I participated in in that many times. We are called to love one another, to live in unity with one another. I think that is so important for us. Now, while this passage, I think, has important implications for the church, for local congregations, I think it also has important implications for the, the Christian, uh, for Christian ecumenism. I used to be very troubled by the fact that the body of Christ is divided up into all these different denominations. But I've come to believe that it really is a good thing in some ways. I don't think that uh, the heart of Christ is quite as broken over that as the fact that we sometimes fall into tribalism and we do not accept that someone else who reads scripture differently or has a different theology or perhaps have, has a different understanding of how to live the Christian life, that we can't accept them because they don't come up to our standard, the standard we have for our tribe. But recently I've come to believe that the goodness that can come out of all of these denominations uh, 
is not unlike these pictures you might have seen. I, I have one in my office, although it's not hung because I'm about to move out. <laughs> but it's a picture that, that was, uh, the original was hung at General Convention in 2000. And it's, a, it's the face of Christ. But when you get up close, you'll find that there are all these individual faces that are in that mosaic. And I think that's what the denominations are. I think we're all a piece in the mosaic that is the body of Christ. And when we're at our best, we get to know each other and we become we, be, we start to appreciate one another and the distinction that we are as a, as a denomination. And I think that the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion has something in particular to offer as a denomination. I believe we are a wonderful bridge between Catholicism and Protestantism. We are the people of the middle way. We take some from each and say that can be good. But I think it's very important for us to see that Jesus' vision for the church, for the body of Christ, was one of unity. It was not one of tribalism. In a few moments, we have the opportunity to participate in the baptism of Colin Edward Clark. I think it's important for us to remember that our unity as the body of Christ is based in our baptism. One of the things that I've uh, been a bit amazed at is that these different denominations can accept the baptism of another denomination. That's true of someone's baptized in the Methodist Church. They can become an Episcopalian, don't have to be rebaptized. I think that's also true for the Roman Catholics. But most of the denominations will say is that we recognize anyone baptized in the name of the Trinity. So when we're baptized, we are not baptized into the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, or the Lutheran Church. We're baptized as Christians, a part of the body of Christ. So this morning, when we baptize Colin, Colin is being baptized in Christ's one holy, Catholic, apostolic church, just like we say in the creed. He is a part of something much greater than just one denomination. He is a part of the mosaic, part of the body of Christ, part of the expression of the love of God. And I pray that when we see him baptized, we will remember that we are all called to unity in Christ. Amen.